you know that the private home is open for business when the owner puts a tree branch over the door. Welcome to Italy Inside Out. I'm your host, Andrea Aldrich. The art of winemaking was brought to southern Italy and Sicily by the Greeks. The Etruscans gave wine to central Italy, and then the Romans began producing wine on a grand scale and dispersed it throughout their empire. The sun-baked north-south peninsula of Italy provides many geographical, geological, and climactic zones, allowing for the cultivation of a variety of grapes, producing some of the world's most popular wines. Here to explore the wines of Italy with us is my guest today, Chris Zimmerman. Chris has been involved in the wine business for 38 years and is a recognized specialist in Italian wines. He's a much sought-after speaker and instructor at wine festivals and events throughout the U.S. Since 2016, he has been the vice president of sales of Scarpetta Wines. Welcome, Chris. How are you? I'm great, Andrea. Thank you so much for, uh, for the invitation. I'm excited to be here uh, and excited to talk to somebody in this, uh, in this time of, uh, of perhaps some quarantine. That's great. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Would you begin by telling us about your background in the wine industry? How did you get started in, in, in such an endeavor? Yeah, absolutely. I um. I guess it was probably about uh, 40 years ago, and uh, I was a starving photographer in New York City, and uh, um, to make ends meet, uh, I started waiting tables, uh, and I got a job as a waiter at a great French restaurant in New York City in Manhattan called the Café des Artistes, Uh, and they had a wonderful chef from Provence, uh, and I started to learn about wine. I started to learn about French wine. I got very interested. I um, ultimately joined a small wine company in New York City uh, as a salesman in 1982. And I got to sell perhaps the greatest wine in the world or what some people would consider the greatest wine in the world, which is the beautiful Burgundies from the winery called Domaine della Romani Conti, which is located in the town of Von Romani in, uh, in Burgundy. So I started at the very top of, uh, of the wine world, and today I sell little cans of Lambrusco. So it's been downhill for 38 years. Uh, no, I, 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 I love it. So I started in French wine. Um, in 1982 in New York City. And then in 1985, I met an Italian gentleman uh, by the name of Leonardo Locascio. And uh, Leonardo had a wine company specializing in Italian wines uh, called Winebow, which is still very much in existence today. Uh, And I worked for Leonardo, um, who is Sicilian, and worked for Winebow uh, for 14 or 15 years. And uh, I was kind of responsible for developing their national uh, distribution network. They were a distributor of fine wine in, in the New York uh, metropolitan area, and I kind of took it out from there and spent 14 or 15 years flying around America, um, 
introducing people to little little known Italian wines. Um, I think back and uh, um, our first little claim to fame of selling Italian wine was the wine called Salice Salentino, uh, which is from Puglia, uh, from the Salento Peninsula, the heel of the boot. And nobody had ever heard of Salice Salentino or could they even pronounce it. Um, but that became our uh, kind of lead wine. And uh, the winemaker uh, was a wonderful uh, gentleman whose name was Dr. Cosimo Taurino uh, from a little town in Salento called Guagnano, which is near the beautiful city of Lecce in Puglia. And Dr. Taurino and I spent time traveling around America promoting his wines, and it was quite entertaining because Dr. Taurino never spoke a word of English. And he didn't even say good morning or good night. You know, he said buongiorno and buonanotte. Um, and so I was his interpreter, even though I didn't speak Italian. So it was uh, it was pretty entertaining. Um, but good I way to learn Italian, though, right? Good way to learn. And, um, you know, even to this day, I have to admit that uh, uh, I wish I had, you know, taken formal classes in the language uh, because my vocabulary, I know lots of words, uh, but my vocabulary is kind of based on the wine mm -hmm. business. So if I'm in a situation where somebody's talking about politics in Italy or sports, I'm lost. But if they talk about food and wine, I speak, I speak fluent menu. <laughs> Perfect. Before we go, oh, I'm sorry. Before we go any further, would you stand up so I can read what your what your uh, T-shirt says? Yeah, it says prosciutto and pro-choice and prosecco. Excellent. Yes, thank certainly, you. Certainly, three very important uh, things to be uh, supportive of: prosciutto, pro-choice, and prosecco. Um, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. So. No, I, I, uh, I worked for Winebow Italian Wines um, that was based out of New York for about 15 years. I, um, I joined a big Sicilian uh, winery um, located not far from Corleone um, called Calatrazi, and uh, I helped uh, them secure distribution in America of their wines. I was with them for uh, two years. Uh, got them set up. And then in 2001, I joined Vias Imports, uh, another Italian company um, that is owned by an Italian gentleman uh, named Fabrizio Pedroli, who lives in Trento. Um, so the company is uh, kind of based in Trento and based in New York City. And I was their manager um, in Seattle and responsible for sales of uh, their wines in a number of Western states. They're called Vias Imports. They have a, uh, also a wonderful Italian uh, portfolio. And um, basically, I have been in love with um, Italy and everything Italian uh, since my first trip there in 1985. Well, you know, they say that you don't choose Italy. Italy chooses you. I, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right. It's a, you know, and the Italian wine subject is such a big and wonderful subject. Uh, and so deep that there are no experts. We are all passionate students. And if somebody, I always say, if somebody tells you that they are 
an expert in Italian wines, you should show them the door um, because there's no such thing. Well, there are a few, but, um, and then in, um, in uh, the beginning of 2016, so just uh, uh, four or five years ago, I joined um, the Scarpetta Wine Company, uh, which is owned by two brilliant um, young American restaurateurs uh, from Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Bobby Stuckey, who is a very well-known um, master sommelier. Um, and Lachlan Patterson, who is a James Beard award-winning chef. And these guys came out of the French Laundry in, in the Napa Valley where they worked for Thomas Keller. Um, Bobby ran the wine program and Lachlan was uh, working um, alongside Thomas uh, at the French Laundry. And in 2004, these two young men decided to open up their own restaurant in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, it is a Friulian restaurant. Uh, called Frasca Food and Wine. Um, last year, they won the James Beard Award for the most outstanding hospitality of any restaurant in America. Excellent. This, in this year, 2020, which this 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 odd year of 2020, uh, they were nominated and we're waiting to hear next month who the winner is, but they're nominated as the most outstanding restaurant in America. Um, and it's unusual uh, that they chose a region of Friuli to establish a restaurant um, and kind of introduced uh, or certainly were instrumental in popularizing Friulian wine um, in America. And these are American uh, restaurateurs. They have um, a few restaurants in Colorado. Frasca Food and Wine is their, uh, is their flagship restaurant. And uh, that word Frasca which is spelled F-R-A-S-C-A, is a beautiful word uh, because in Friuli, there is an age-old tradition of private homes that open their doors as restaurants, either for lunch or for dinner or for both. And it's a tradition that has continued for a century or more uh, and is still active today. So when a private home decides to open up their home to feed travelers. Uh, you know that the private home is open for business when the owner puts a tree branch over the door and the tree branch is called a frasca. And it's a symbol. It's a symbol of welcome and a symbol of hospitality. So that's the name and the symbol and the logo that Bob and Lachlan chose for their restaurant in Colorado. And in about the year 2007, uh, Bobby, with help of friends in Italy, particularly in Friuli, um, in the region called Coli Orientali, which is right on the Friulian-Slovenian border, uh, Bobby and uh, and a winemaker friend made a couple hundred cases of Tokai Friulano uh, to serve at his restaurant in Colorado. And that was the basis or the beginning of, of uh, Scarpetta Wine Company, which I work for today. That's neat. Great story. Um, so you've been representing wines from the north all the way to the south of Italy, including Sicily, of course. Is yes. that true? Yeah. It is true. And, you know, I love it. I have, um, like you, I have been back and forth to Italy many times. I, I know that I have been back and forth to Italy over my career over 40 times. Uh, and I've traveled to every corner 
of the country from the Valdosta uh, to Friuli and to Puglia and to Sicily and to Sardinia. Um, and, you know, that has kept me so fascinated and so in love uh, with the country because each region, um, each area, each wine producing zone um, is so unique to itself and to its history and to its culture and its cuisine. Um, you know, when we think about the American wine scene, we think about perhaps, you know, a dozen different grape varieties, uh, which are the same principal grape varieties in France, like Chardonnay and Cabernet and Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc and Merlot and the key, the beautiful wines of France and the Rhone Valley. You know, when you think about Germany, you're thinking primarily about Riesling. Uh, but when you get to Italy, you know, there are, you know, perhaps a thousand different grape varieties grown in, you know, over 500 different appellations in 20 regions. Uh, so it's a very big and wonderful and diverse uh, subject. And I, I remember once um, asking a winemaker in the beautiful town of Orvieto, mm -hmm. um, what wine would he drink if he could drink any wine in the world? Because I know which wine I would drink. <laughs> and he said, Orvieto, of course. Um, and that's not so unusual. Or uh, when I worked so many years ago with Dr. Cosimo Taurino in Puglia, you know, he was madly in love with Salice Salentino and madly in love with you know, Negro, Amaro, and Primitivo, and the grapes of that region, and he was not particularly in tune with Tokai Friulano, or, you know, Rifosco, or Nebbiolo. So each region is so wonderful and so unique, and the wines seem to have grew up or emerged alongside of the culture and the cuisine, and they work so well in their own locales. Well, on that note, would you give us a little synap synopsis of the wines in some of the regions of Italy that, that you've been connected with? Well, yes, certainly. I mean, very often people ask me, um, you know, what is your favorite Italian wine? And that's kind of like asking you, you know, uh, who's your favorite child? Um, and so, you know, I, I, I've been madly in love with it all. That's my problem. I'm madly in love with it all. But, um, you know, I, I particularly am fond of and uh, love the region of Piemonte. Um, and, you know, it, it is not only so beautiful um, and it is not only kind of nestled just below the, the French Alps and the, and the Swiss Alps, um, it's rel it's basically a landlocked region. Um, so it has been more famous for, you know, meat than fish. Um, consequently, their most famous wine or wines are made with the grape called Nebbiolo, uh, which is, you know, one of my favorite grapes on the planet. Uh, it has a history uh, of being cultivated in uh in Piedmont, and particularly in the subzone called the Lange, um, around the towns of Barolo and Barbaresco, uh, it's been 
cultivated there since the Roman times. Um, as a matter of fact, Barbaresco, which is perhaps my favorite example or expression of the Nebbiolo grape, Barbaresco is a small village um, with a population of about 650 people. I think they're all winemakers. Um, and the town was first a Roman military outpost. And there is a tower that is the symbol of Barbaresco that is still there uh, today. That was a, originally a Roman tower. And it was the Romans who named this place. And they named it in Latin. Um, and they named it Barbarica Silva, uh, which meant barbarians in the forest. And I don't know about you, but I just kind of like the sound of barbarians <laughs> in the forest. Uh, so the history there of, uh, you know, and the history all over Italy, of course, uh, goes back um, thousands of years. Uh, Tuscany, of course, um, which is what kind of people have in their mind's eye when they think of Italy and the beauty of Italy. Tuscany is so remarkable and so gorgeous, uh, but they grow a different grape. Uh, that doesn't grow in the Piedmont. So the Piedmont is famous for Nebbiolo and perhaps Barbera and Dolcetto, and Tuscany is famous for Sangiovese, um, which is another beautiful word, um, which probably was a grape that was cultivated pre-Roman by the Etruscans. And it's perhaps that the Romans named the grape variety Sangiovese from the Latin Sangue di Giove, uh, which meant the blood of Jupiter. Or the, and Jupiter was, I guess, the king of all the gods. So the Romans named the wine the blood of the king of all the gods. It must have been very good wine. Uh, and so today it is, you know, today the greatest mm -hmm. wines of central Italy, like Brunello di Montalcino and Chianti and... Um, Vino Nobile. Vino Nobile de Montepulciano are all made with, uh, with the blood of Jupiter, Sangiovese. Oh, before we go any further, because I don't want to forget this, would you talk a little bit about the classifications of the wines, the DOCG, the IGT, the DOC? Absolutely. You know, these are the, uh, the, um, the DOC laws um, were written in Italy. Um, in the early 19 or in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, basically um, to emulate the French AOC or the French Appellation Controle laws. Um, uh, the DOC stands for Denominazione Origine Controllata, and these um, are a body of laws that were written to guarantee. Um, the authenticity of a wine. So they were not specifically written to guarantee quality, which they do, but they were written to guarantee the authenticity of the wine so that you as a consumer were guaranteed of what you were getting. Um, and the, uh, the DOC, I don't know if you can... The DOC looks a little bit like a pyramid, and 
the DOC wines, which there are somewhere around uh, um, between four and 500 different DOCs, um, is kind of the ocean of quality wines where it all began. Um, and then in the 1980s, um, eight wines were elevated to a higher status. And they were the wines that were perhaps the most Italian. Uh, and they were elevated to a status which was new at the time, DOCG, DOC guaranteed. And they included wines like Barolo and Barbaresco and Brunello da Montalcino um, and Chianti and uh, perhaps oddly enough, Vernaccia di San Gimignano. Um, but today there are perhaps 75 or 80 different, maybe more, DOCG wines. In the 1990s, uh, we started to see an emergence of uh, a category with a name that doesn't really mean anything called Super Tuscan, um, where winemakers in Tuscany were experimenting, or were kind of deviating uh, from uh, the DOC wines. Uh, they were making Sangioveses blended with Cabernet and blended with Merlot and blended with Syrah uh, and aged in small French oak barrels. Uh, and these wines became known as Super Tuscans. And uh, it's interesting, people have said, could you explain what a Super Tuscan is? And I said, yes, it's from Tuscany and it costs 70 bucks. Um, there is no official designation called Super Tuscan, but what the word essentially describes are wines that have or are breaking with tradition. Uh, and a couple of the most famous Super Tuscan wines, uh, one made by uh, the Antonori family uh, called Tignanello, uh, which was first made in the late 60s or early 70s, um, a very sought after, one of Italy's most sought after and most expensive wines uh, is made by blending um, so I think it's 75% Sangiovese with 25% Cabernet. Uh, and then the great wine, which is kind of the, the father of all super Tuscans called Sassicaia, uh, which comes from the Tuscan coast, the region called the Marema, uh, around the city of Bulgari. Um, this is again, one of Italy's most expensive bottles of wine and hard to get, and it's made all of Cabernet. So um, those wines necessitated because they were Italy's greatest wines. They were Italy's most expensive wines. And yet they were not a DOC. They were not a DOCG. They weren't allowed to use those designations. So in the 90s, they created a category called IGT, uh, which allowed for winemakers to do more experimenting, to do more blending. Um, and that stands for Indicazione Geografica Tipica. Um, and that's just below in the pyramid, that's just below DOC. And then the top of the pyramid are the DOCG wines. And then below the IGT are wines that we don't see much of in, in America, uh, which are basically Vino de Tavola. Uh, these are wines that don't even carry a vintage date. That doesn't mean they're good or, or not good. It uh, just is the rules that are, are, are being followed. So at the bottom of the pyramid, you have the VDT or the Vino de Tavola, then IGT, then DOC, and then DOCG. I have one question about that. The DOCG, does that usually signify that 
or that that wine is produced in a certain geographical area? Absolutely. You know, the DOC and the DOCG both uh, have to be produced in a legally designated geographical area. Um, IGT wines are generally have to be 80% of a particular geographical area, like say Tuscany, but could have 20% of wines from Umbria. Um, but a DOC wine has a specific geographical location um, that has to be adhered to. It, it has specific grape, allowable grape varieties that have to be adhered to. And then the rules for DOCG are just kind of that much more strict. And I would say that perhaps for me, the most important aspect of DOCG has always been that the allowable yield is lower. So, you know, if, if um, you're making um, a DOC wine in Tuscany, you may be allowed to yield, you know, I don't know, three tons per acre. Whereas if you're making Brunello di Montalcino or Vino Nobile, you're allowed to yield two tons or mm. one and a half. So we all know that in the old days, the thought was if you made more wine, you made more money. And then we realized that if you made better wine, you made more money. And if you reduce the yield of a vine, then all that energy is concentrated. All that energy that the vine has is concentra concentrated into less amount of fruit. So if you reduce the yield of a vine, you increase the quality of the wine. Interesting. That was um, very informative. I've often had questions about uh, those designations. Okay, so continue on south with the wine regions and tell us some more, maybe about um, southern Italy, Sicily. Well, yeah, you know, uh, I think that um, um, probably the two most famous regions in Italy are Tuscany and Piedmont when it comes to wine. Um, Friuli being on the border with Slovenia is um, is off the beaten path, but it is fascinating because of not only the proximity to the Alps, to the Carnic Alps and the Julian Alps, but to the Adriatic Sea and the beautiful seaport of Trieste. The wines of Trentino Alto Adige uh, have their uh, Tyrolean and Germanic uh, roots. Uh, so we have the most gorgeous, spectacular white wines made out of Riesling and Silvaner and Kerner uh, from those uh, Tyrolean mountains, um, in addition to a couple of spectacular reds. Um, but then as you move south, um, say from Tuscany, and if we go to Naples, well, now you've kind of entered the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Um, in the ancient world, uh, the region around Vesuvius was um, was the was the ancient world's Bordeaux. These, this is where it all started. This is where the Romans took wine cultivation to Gaul and to and throughout the Roman Empire. And so, um, in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius, you have the great wines uh, made from the local grape varieties, the red variety called Alianico, um, 
uh, which is, uh, you know, which is antique. And then uh, this is the area where the Greeks um, settled, the ancient Greeks. As a matter of fact, they named the city of Naples. They named it Neopolis, which was the new city. And out of the, in the ancient world, Naples was the second most important city after Athens. And uh, now we have the great white wine from that area called Greco uh, or Greco di Tufo, clearly from its Greek uh, origin. Uh, and we find Greco planted in um, the region around Naples or the region which is Campania. Uh, we find Greco, uh, the white wine, Greco white, Greco Bianco and Greco Nero grown in uh, Calabria uh, and in Puglia and in Basilicata. So that whole area at the, at the southern end of, uh, of Italy, which was, you know, Sicily and Puglia and Basilicata and Campania and were all part of Magna Graecia, the greater Greece. Um, and it was the Greeks that developed the wine producing. And then, of course, the friendly Romans enslaved them. Um, but, um, and took it to the rest of the world. So you have great wines, uh, Greco di Tufo from Campania, uh, the great red wine, which was the first DOCG in the south of Italy. And for the only, for a long time, the only DOCG in the south of Italy, which is the red wine called Taurasi, uh, which is made a hundred percent of the grape called Alianico and, uh, has the longest required aging of any DOCG wine in Italy, which requires a minimum aging of four years before it can be sold. Like today, like Brunello uh, is a minimum aging of four years. Um, and where uh, does Nero Davola come into that? Is that? Nero Davola is Sicilian. So Nero Davola is indigenous or what uh, is called autochthonous or aboriginal. Uh, to to Sicily. So in Campania, the important indigenous red variety is Alianico. In Puglia, it is Negro Amaro. In uh, Sicily, it is Nero Davola. And um, in the southeast of Sicily, not too far from the beautiful Greek city of Syracuse, uh, there is a small village called Avola, uh, and it is thought that the grape originated in that area, and it was known as the black grape or the dark grape of Avola, hence Nero d'Avola. So, you know, if you're in Sicily and you're drinking red wine, you're drinking Nero d'Avola, mm. unless, and it's Italy, so there's always an exception, and I like to say Italians don't like rules. Um, if you're in Sicily and you're on the volcano, um, Mount Etna, Europe's most active volcano, um, then you're drinking red wine from a local indigenous grape called Norello Mascalese. So Norello Mascalese, which is very Pinot Noir-like, um, grows on the volcano and loves the volcanic soil, but pretty much everywhere else, you know, from, um, you know, from Messina to uh, Marsala and to Syracuse, the red wine is Nero d'Avola. But there are many beautiful uh, white wines there. And then if you go to the island of Sardinia, you know, there are five million people in Sicily. 
There are only uh, one and a half million people in Sardinia. And twice as many sheep. There are six million sheep. Yes, exactly right. That's why we have such beautiful cheese there. But um, uh, in Sardinia, they... Uh, the principal grape is called Cananau, uh, which happens to have the same genetic composition or DNA as Grenache. Um, so that grape variety is probably not autochthonous to Sardinia. Uh, it probably was brought by the Spaniards. Um, but that that doesn't have any effect on the incredible red wines of Sardinia made with Cananau or some made with the local grape called Monica. And then maybe some of the greatest of all of Italy's white wine coming from the north coast of, uh, of Sardinia made from the white wine, the white grape Vermentino. Yeah, when I was in Sardinia, I, I had uh, a lot of experience with both of those wines and they're, they're two of my favorite, white and red wines, Cananau and Vermentino. They're so good. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I've always found it fascinating. And, you know, I've been all over Italy many times, but I've only been to Sardinia uh, two or three times. And I, I, I yearn to, I yearn to get back. Um, but I've always found it interesting that when you're in Sicily, it is a uh, kind of a land of fishermen and a cuisine that is so rich in, uh, in seafood, you know, kind of the principal cuisine. Whereas, um, Sardinia was a land of uh, shepherds, and that's why they have six million sheep. And um, I don't know how accurate I am, but, uh, you know, Sardinia was a place that the Romans never really got much of a foothold. Just the Barbagia in the center is, is the, the, the wild lands. They couldn't, they couldn't infiltrate. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so because the Romans could hold on to the coastline, perhaps, um, the indigenous people... Uh, moved inland and uh, and became shepherds, uh, but then emerged this again this very beautiful uh, cuisine with this kind of wild, um, perhaps slightly rustic character uh, to it. But um, no, it's it's uh, it's always been a joy and fascinating to me how how unique um, each area is in the region of Calabria. Um, which too is not that well um, known by, by American tourists, is both mountainous and beautiful coastlines. They grow the ancient Greek, pardon me, the ancient Greek, Greek grape called Galliopo. Um, so if you find a, wine, a red wine uh, from Calabria, or um, it'll, it could be labeled Galliopo, uh, which is the grape variety, or it could be labeled after the name of a town, which would be a DOC. For example, Chiro, C-I-R-O, uh, which is a beautiful coastal town uh, on the Ionian Sea. Uh, and they make the DOC wine called Chiro. And that, you know, by law is made out of the, the red grape called Galliopo. And your listeners probably know that uh, Calabria is also the land of beautiful spicy food where the cuisine is kind of one place in Italy where they've embraced, you know, kind of the red hot chili peppers, um, which they use in so much, so many different, uh, so many different dishes. Um, so yeah. And then on the Adriatic coast in, uh, in, uh, in the Marche, 
you have, uh, again, one of my favorite white wines in the whole country and one of uh, Italy's most long-lived white wines called Verdicchio, uh, which comes from the Marche. And then, of course, the region of Abruzzo, um, which is both coastal and high mountains, uh, famous for Montepulciano d'Abruzzo and Trebbiano d'Abruzzo. Montepulciano, not to be confused with Vino Nobile. Um, one is the name of a, a grape and one is the name of a town. Montepulciano in Tuscany is made out of Sangiovese and Montepulciano in Abruzzo is made out of Montepulciano. Well, Chris, you, it's, I can definitely see you have a wealth and depth of information on the wine of Italy. Do you have any stories or anecdotes that you might want to share with us? Well, you know, I, um, I, uh, I now work with Scarpetta and uh, Scarpetta is um, essentially Friulian based. I mean, we make, we make uh, several wines in Friuli, uh, primarily uh, white and sparkling wines uh, in Friuli. We uh, kind of our most successful wine in America is uh, uh, DOC Friuli uh, Pinot Grigio, uh, but we're making Prosecco and sparkling Pinot Noir there. We make a completely and utterly organic Barbera uh, with friends in the Piedmont and Sangiovese in Tuscany. But um, the first time I ever went to Friuli um, in the nineteen, the late 1980s, um, the region that bordered Friuli, which is now Slovenia, was the former Yugoslavia. And I went to visit a woman who's a winemaker uh, there. Her name is Vanda Gradnik, nice Italian name. And uh, I went, I called Vanda and asked her how to get to her winery. And she told me in Italian which road to take through the mountains. Uh, and then in Italian, she said, it's the last house before Yugoslavia. And so mm. I drove and I drove and I was lost. And, uh, this was, this was before we had GPS. And uh, I came to a border crossing and there was a gate across the road and there was a soldier in a guardhouse with a rifle. And he said, you can't go any further. And in my little Italian, I said, uh, Dove la cantina van de Gradnik? And the soldier pointed with his rifle to the house <laughs> that was the last house before Yugoslavia. Amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a memorable story. You certainly had lots of adventures. Um, I would like to tell my listeners that I'll put your um, email, if you would like me to, in the show notes if they want to get a hold of you about your wines for um, the wines you sell. And I want to thank you so much. This has been fun and informative. There's so much more to hear. I might want to have you back another time. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation. I, uh, I kind of, uh, as you can tell, love talking about Italian wine. I've really enjoyed hearing what you've had to tell us today, Chris. And at this point, I'm going to say grazie mille and arrivederci. Grazie. Uh, have a, have a, have a lovely day. And, uh, yeah, if, um, if we want to chat about more Italian wine anytime, I would, I would welcome it. Great. After the interview was complete, Chris and I continued chatting a bit, 
and we started bouncing around ideas of perhaps combining our respective knowledge of Italy and developing a tour. If you're interested, let me know. My contact information is in the show notes. Ciao! Well, that's it for this episode of Italy Inside Out. This podcast is sponsored by Travel in Italia, leading small group tours on the mainland and islands of Italy. You can find more information at www.travelinitalia.com. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe to this podcast. And until next time, arrivederci.